You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8 this morning. Romans 8, we're going to look at verses 5 through 11. Again, one of the benefits of of kind of preaching through books of the Bible and, and, and you come up on passages that are sometimes difficult or sometimes challenging and, and uh, it uh, simply encourages us to, to look at them. And this is a particular subject that's, that's not easy to talk about. Second Peter uh, chapter 1 tells us to be urgent, to be uh, uh, diligent about confirming our calling and election. In other words, to make sure of your salvation. And uh, I think the, the main point of Romans 8 as a whole is to give assurance, but, but we want to be mindful that it is to give assurance to those who are truly saved, uh, not to comfort those uh, who aren't. And uh, so that's where the, ta- the task, the, the difficulty lies. And uh, so this is one of those ones where we are examining our own hearts and lives uh, before the Lord, each of us this morning, and as uh, we do that and listen and, and, and respond to how God leads us. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 5, says this, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. And anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Let's pray together. Lord, we again, as we have open Bibles on our laps, we're acknowledging, Lord, that we need to hear from you. And so please give us ears to hear. And Lord, help us and as we look at your word and by the help of your spirit to examine our own hearts and lives, um, that we might have this great assurance that Paul is speaking of here. And if we don't, then we would run to the one who can give it. You, Father, through Jesus Christ. I pray that you would use me as your servant today. I pray that you would increase and I would decrease. And your word would go forth. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I think one of the dangerous teachings that can come out of Romans 7 and Romans 8 is that there are three categories of people. Uh, Number one, there are those who are not Christians. 
Number two, there are those who are Christians. And then number three, there are those who are Christians, but who are living in an unsaved manner. And this third group is often called uh, carnal Christians or fleshly Christians. You hear some of the language in the flesh of the passage that we just read. We didn't talk about it, but one of the views of Paul's struggle with sin in chapter 7, remember when he says he doesn't do what he wants to do and he does the thing that he doesn't want to do, that big struggle that he had there, is that perhaps Paul was speaking of himself in that third category, that he was a carnal Christian. And and the view kind of postulates this this two-stage approach to Christianity. The first stage is when a person accepts Jesus as their Savior, uh, and then uh, later on, they accept Him as their Lord. They try to divide those two things. And so some would argue in Romans 7 that Paul is simply talking about a time in his life when he was living with Jesus as his Savior, but he was not yet submitted to Him as Lord. And part of his struggle is he needs to get off the throne of his own life and allow the Spirit to take control. And that's what we're talking about in Romans 8, 5 through 8, the call to just do that. I think that view is, is wrong. And, and, and fatally flawed, because it, it, it can lead people to think that, that though it, it might be uh, good and, and wise to become really serious about the Christian life, that in the end, becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ is something optional for believers. It's kind of an add-on, you know. It's kind of for those people who are on the extreme over there. The, the fact that you can, you can be a Christian and you can live very carelessly about your Christianity. You can, you, you can do a lot or, or do a little. You can achieve nothing. And yet in the very end, you're going to go to heaven when you die because you made him your savior. You can have the best of both worlds, if you will. You can have one foot in, in your sin and one foot in heaven uh, and, and end up being okay at the same time. And then I would say that those people who tell you this or, or to teach this are giving a false hope of assurance of salvation. This view completely misses the mark of what Paul is making here, the, 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 the contrast that he's making here in chapter 8, because clearly it's a contrast between two groups of people, those who are in the flesh and those who are in the Spirit. What's happening in Romans 8.5 is a contrast between those two. He's not talking about a contrast between someone uh, who who has Jesus as their Savior and, and maybe later someone who has Jesus as their Lord. No, the contrast is between those who are Christians and those who are not Christians at all. And I, I know what 1 Corinthians 3 says. I'm not saying that Christians can't and don't act fleshly, right? We all can act fleshly. We, we can act uh, in our carnality. We do. We struggle with sin. We need to grow. We need to bear, we bear fruit. But it's dangerous to say that there are three categories, lost, saved, and carnal, when the Bible continually speaks of two categories, those who are lost and those who are saved. Now, Last week, we talked about this incredible declaration that Paul makes in verse 1 
and the assurance of salvation that comes when he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we talked about the entire Godhead, Father, Son, Spirit being involved in our salvation. And in verse 4 where we left, uh, he says those who have this assurance, he says, walk or they live not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. It's only to those, those people who are living according to the Spirit that He gives this great assurance to. And He continues to explain that thought in, in our passage today. There are only two categories of people. Those are in the flesh, those are in the Spirit. Notice His description of those in the flesh. Uh, he, he describes them as those whose mind minds are set on the things of the flesh. Verse 5, those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Most of us, when we hear that word flesh, maybe our mind goes to uh, fleshly kinds of sins, sins that would involve our carnality like sexual sins or, or drunkenness or materialism or some other sensual pleasure. And there's no doubt that those things are included in his definition, but what Paul is saying here is much more comprehensive than that. And the fact that he is talking about our minds, that you're setting your minds on these things, reminder that he's, he's speaking of something more uh, broader than, than just carnal kinds of sins. He's talking about what is it that occupies your mind? What is it that preoccupies uh, your thoughts? How are you spending your, your time, giving your energies? What are you giving yourselves to? And Paul says those who are in the flesh that is unsaved, they are setting their minds on the things of the flesh. John Bunyan defined, uh, defined being in the flesh as worldly-mindedness, worldly-mindedness. It, it, it's, it, it's anything and everything that is opposed to spiritual things. It's just worldly, earthly, fleshly things. You could say that the things of the flesh would include every aspect of life without God. It's, it's like a, it's someone who has completely severed from uh, their thinking, from all that is spiritual. The, the person who only thinks about what he can see with his eyes and never what is unseen, the things of the Spirit. Only things that pertain to this life, to pertain to his person, his interest, his life. Never things that pertain to the next one commentator put it like this, it's easy to forget for extended periods of time that God exists. The flesh does not necessarily focus on physical sins and pleasures. The goals can be efficiency or success or security or respectability. Whatever is in mind, God is simply outside of the mind. That's what's being said. He's outside of it. And this is where it becomes difficult and, and, and where it requires examination because a, a person, a moral, upstanding type of person can be in the flesh, have their minds set on the things of the flesh. Some of you may fit that category today. Okay, so you'd say, well, I haven't committed murder and I haven't, you know, committed adultery and these fleshly things. But have you thought about spiritual things this past week? Have you opened your Bible since last Sunday? 
Have you spent any time, much time in prayer, other than maybe a quick prayer over your food? Have you encouraged and led your family in, in, in spiritual things? Have you given any thought to your soul? Any thought to your relationship with God? Any thought to your own personal holiness? If the Spirit of God is in you, don't you think some of that would be on your mind? And more regularly than right in this moment on Sunday? Lloyd-Jones writes, The good, cultured, well-spoken, moral man is as devoid of the Spirit as the most obvious and prolific sinner. He's outside the life of God as much as the other, you see. That's a dangerous place to be. Notice that's Paul's conclusion here. The second thing that he mentions is, is that they are spiritually dead. Those who are in the flesh, verse 6, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, he said. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Now, again, Paul is not describing a third category of carnal Christianity here. No, this person is unsaved. He or she is facing spiritual death. That's what that means. In contrary to those who set their minds on the things of the, of the Spirit where there's life and peace. The person Paul is describing in the flesh is someone who is unresponsive to the things of God. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. The carnal man is in a spiritual, he's in spiritual death. He's, he's in effect dead to God. He lives as if there were no God. I quoted Lloyd-Jones a moment ago. He tells a story about William Wilberforce, who was the man who led the, the movement uh, to abolish slavery in, in the British Empire. And, and there's a, ta- a story that Wilberforce recounts about his friend whom he had named William Pitt. And Pitt was at one time the prime minister of, of England, but Pitt was by his own, uh, I think, confession. He was a nominal Christian, a Christian in name only at best. And uh, Wilberforce was very concerned about his friend, about his salvation. And so he, he heard that uh, Richard Cecil was a great preacher during that time. Uh, he, he heard that he was going to be in London. And so he invited his fin- friend Pitt to come with him. And they went to the service. And Cecil was uh, at his best, Wilberforce said. He's just a great man of God. Brought this incredible message, this word of God with great power. And Wilberforce was so delighted that his friend had come to hear it. But after it was over, they were walking out together. And Pitt turned to Wilberforce and he said, I have not the slightest idea of what that man was talking about. Here, here's an intelligent, capable man, a, a man of great intellectual ability and leadership, and he could not understand. It was as if he was deaf to God and his word. And in fact, the scripture said he was dead in his trespasses and sins. Paul tells us this, doesn't he? 1 Corinthians 2, 14, that the natural person, that that the person in their flesh, apart from God, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to them. And notice it says, he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 
So the person in the flesh either doesn't accept spiritual things or they think they're folly because they're not in the spirit. The spirit has to provide that understanding, which leads us to the heart of this problem. Notice how Paul describes this. Someone in their flesh is both unwilling and unable to please God. That's what he says. Verse 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Again, Paul is not comparing two kinds of Christians here, is he? No, this is a Christian and a non-Christian he's talking about. And the language is strong. They don't submit to God's law. They're hostile, he says. They they cannot. Most people, I think, do not consider themselves lost people, unbelieving people, or even nominal Christians or or those in the flesh. Most lost people do not consider themselves hostile to God. They would consider themselves, I'm not militant to God, but you see, that's always from our point of view. It's not from God's point of view. God is the, I think you would agree with this, God is the greatest, most glorious being in the world, the creator, the judge, the sovereign of the universe, amen? All of those wonderful things, and, but, but even your apathy towards him is hostility because he's so great. Even your attempts to think, you know what, I don't need his word. I can come up with my own plan for salvation, my own pathway. Here's what I think, despite what God's word says. That is an offense to God. Much less what we're talking about of living your life in the flesh, living your life any way that you want to live, irregardless of what, or, or excuse me, regardless of what he said in his word. I, I, I would think to myself, you know, having a bumper sticker on your car that says something like, I stand for the flag and kneel for the cross, it really doesn't matter if you are giving people the finger and cussing them out on the way to work. Having a a bumper sticker does not mean that you are in the Spirit when everything in your life is in the flesh. Oh, sure, you you might get a little teary-eyed when amazing grace is played, and you get emotional because of that. But if it's not bothering you to stand around the water cooler on Monday morning and listen and tell coarse jokes and curse with your, uh, with your buddies at work or gossip with your mommies, uh, not giving a thought to God for the rest of the week, you are hostile to God. And, and I know the retort, oh, well, pastor, don't judge me, right? Don't judge me. Remember verse 1, there's now no condemnation for those in Christ. And people will say that, yes. And what Paul is saying there is true if these things are true. But this person is not in Christ, you see. Even if you try to construct your own religion to protect yourself and fool others, if the preoccupation of your life and your ambitions and your thoughts are set on the things of the flesh with no thoughts to the things of the Spirit, you are lost. You're lost. 
Paul's repetition of the word here, cannot, is sobering and difficult. It takes us to the depths of our very depravity. It's not just that we have this unwillingness to please God, but there's an inability to please Him. The person in the flesh cannot, will not please God. This is reminding us something very important about our our faith. It tells us Christianity is not just a religion that you wake up to one morning and you decide to put on like a garment or something. No, it's something that involves a change in the depths of your heart. A change that is divinely wrought by by God, so that your very willingness changes, your very desires change, your thoughts change, the preoccupation of your life change. And brothers and sisters, only God can affect a change like that in a person's life. Not you. You can't will this to happen in yourself. And Paul's already told us that, right? Verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin. Who does that? The Spirit of God does that in us, right? Christianity is not just confessing Christ. Anyone can do that. It is being born again, he told Nicodemus. It is being saved from the flesh, saved out of the flesh, and being born in the Spirit of God. And notice the distinction Paul makes about those who are in the Spirit, several of them. Verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, he says, the Spirit of God dwells in you. By, By Paul saying in the Spirit there, by the way, he does not mean that we're in the mood for something, like I'm in the Spirit for chocolate always, right? You know, or I'm in the mood for a steak after lunch. That's not what he's talking about. In, I'm in the spirit. To, no, no. He, he's talking about the dynamic relationship of the indwelling spirit of God coming to take up residence in your life. The very spirit of God lives in us. And the evidence of this will be several things. And it, Number one, one who pursues the things of God. He said that right at the end of verse 5. Those who live according to the spirit. What do they do? They set their minds on the things of the Spirit. There's been such a change inwardly that that those who have been born of the Spirit, indwelt by the Spirit, they now set their minds on spiritual things. A.W. Tozer wrote a book called The Pursuit of God. That's exactly what happens in a person when the Spirit comes in. The thing that they're most pursuing now in life is God. This means that you're very interested in spiritual things. It means you're very interested in your own soul. It means that it crosses your mind more than just when you come in the doors of the church. It means that it's on your mind. You give attention to it. You care for your soul. You nurture it by feeding it the Word of God. You're concerned about your own sinfulness greatly about that. You give attention to your behaviors and your words because you understand that they matter before God. In your flesh, you didn't care very much. 
You were not burdened about your sin, about pursuing holiness, about growing in your faith and knowledge. But now the Spirit is in you. You set your mind on spiritual things, he says. There's a delight in you about these things. You rejoice in them. You're not bored by them. You don't wish that we were talking less about these things. You wish we were talking more about these things. The Christian is one who, when when he surveys the the wondrous cross, he doesn't just glance at that and go away. It's something that moves him, and it moves him still. It grips his life. He wants more and more of it because of the Spirit that lives in him. The Bible is his favorite book because the mind of God, the person of God, is revealed in its pages. He loves it. She desires to learn it more and more. It's not that we're saying that we all pursue these things perfectly in every single moment of our lives, but, but we should all pause and ask, is there something of a taste for these things in our lives? There is something of these desires in me. Is there joy desire for these things? Secondly, notice, he says, someone in the Spirit is marked by life and peace, the end of verse 6. But he says, to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. I mean, we would expect that, right? Knowing, Knowing what has been said already, knowing what Paul has said in other places, that a Christian is someone who has been made alive. Paul said in Ephesians 2, 1, you were dead in the trespasses and sins, but he goes on to say, verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love of which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, here's what he did for us in salvation. He made us alive together with Christ. There's life. A Christian is not someone who, 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 just someone who believes in the Lord Jesus. That's true, but even more so what Paul is saying here is that the Christian is someone who is alive in Christ. It's not just that you've made some kind of confession. It's that something has happened to you. New life in Jesus. The Spirit has come to dwell in you. You were in the flesh. You were spiritually dead. You were facing eternal death. Now there's life in the Spirit. Abundant, eternal life. New desires, new thirst, new heart. And he says we have peace, don't we? Peace with God. We were, in verse 7, he said, hostile to God. But all of that has changed now. We're at peace with God. Romans 5.1, I remind you. Therefore, Paul says, since we have been justified by faith, we've been saved. Here's what happened. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Third, the, the person in the Spirit, he says, belongs to Christ. There's another descriptive characteristic. He belongs to Christ. Verse 9, you, however, he says, you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, notice what he says here. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Don't make any pretensions about this. He does not belong. Verse 10, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life. Because of righteousness. There's some interesting things here I just want to speak to briefly, but notice how Paul speaks interchangeably here of the Spirit. Did you see that? He says the Spirit of God. Well, he says the Spirit one time, then he says uh, the Spirit of God. Uh, then he says he calls him the Spirit of Christ. And, and I would just ask you, how many spirits are there? 
It's not a trick question, right? There's one, amen? And yet Paul uses these terms, doesn't he, interchangeably, Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ. He's pointing us to the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. The the Holy Spirit is not a force. He is a person of the Godhead. The Holy Spirit sent by God, but He's also, He says, sent by Jesus Christ. Notice uh, also the fact that He says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. That's an important statement because it reminds us that to be in Christ, my salvation, is also to have the Spirit. There's not a distinction here. I, I know some of I love you if you're here, but some of our charismatic friends would want you to want to, you believe that you need some kind of a second experience after salvation. Again, back to the two-class Christian. There's, there's this class, and then later on you get the Spirit. That, that is not what Paul is teaching. If a person doesn't have the Holy Spirit, notice he says they don't have Jesus. It's one and, it's one and the same. The moment we become believers, the Spirit of Jesus comes to live in us. And then notice the emphasis on belonging. A person who is in the flesh, who doesn't have the Spirit in them, Christ does not own that person. But a Christian is one who confesses that both Jesus, Jesus is both Savior and Lord, right? He has the Spirit, His Spirit, Jesus' Spirit living in them. He or she belongs to Jesus Christ. Belongs. Lordship, not just Savior, but Lord. I think of the old hymns we, 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 we sometimes sing by that name. Once I was lost in sin's degradation, Jesus came down to bring me salvation, lifted me up from sorrow and shame, and now I belong to Him. Now I belong to Jesus. Jesus belongs to me, not for the years of time alone, but for eternity. There's something more than just sentimentalism there, isn't there? There's there's theological truth. One who has believed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. One who now worships Jesus because of this great salvation. One who has been radically saved by Jesus. A new creation in Jesus Christ. And you know it's all because of Jesus in you. You belong to Him. Finally, someone in the Spirit, he said, is one who's anticipating a glorious resurrection. That's verse 11. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. This is Paul, and he's already done this a few times in our study together. Paul is looking forward to the day that when his old body, his flesh, is either going to die or when Jesus is going to come back and it's going to be changed in a moment and it's going to become, we're going to be given new bodies, resurrected bodies, free from the presence of sin. And so Paul is looking forward to that. He's been redeemed in his soul, but his body's not been redeemed. The same is true of us. But that same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, listen to us, he lives in us, he says. And, and the same spirit who raised Jesus' body from the grave is going to raise us with new bodies, and we will no longer have to battle the flesh. Anyone here say amen to that moment and day? 
Again, notice the whole Godhead involved in this. You have the Spirit, that's God the Spirit, of Him, God the Father, who raised Jesus, God the Son, from the dead. The Spirit dwells in you, and He will also give life to your mortal bodies. That's fantastic. Do you have assurance of these things? That's the main point today. Do you have assurance of these things? Do you know? Does your heart long for this redemption? Is there something in you of a taste for any of these things at all? Any desires? Are you rejoicing in this? Are you setting your minds? If you do have this assurance, then then by all means, perhaps the great application for for those of you who are in the Spirit, you know this, you you know, then, then continue to set your minds on the things of the Spirit. Amen? Give attention more and more to it. More and more. But what if you don't have this assurance today? It is possible, and you know this, it's possible to know all about these doctrines. It's possible to know about justification by faith alone and all of these different things. It's possible to know all of that and never put your trust in Christ as Savior and Lord. We can sign cards. We can walk aisles. We can pray prayers. Uh, We can get dunked multiple times, uh, all of these different things. But here's what it comes down to, what Paul says. Do we have the Spirit of Christ living in us? Do we have it? And if so, there will be a difference in how you live your life. There will be a difference. Does He live in you? Has there been a change in your heart, change in your life that's impacted your life and your decisions and your choices and your words and your actions in ways that you cannot even begin to explain? If not, it takes a lot of humility to do this. And, and, you know, we, we have certainly a time of invitation here in just a moment that I would invite you to come. But I know for some of you that's very difficult, maybe difficult. And so I want to encourage you, if this is you and you're struggling, to reach out to, to myself or to one of our staff members and just say, you know what, can we get together and talk about this? This is so important. This is a matter of eternity. And I want to encourage you to, to do that. Um, don't put this off. The reason some of you may be convicted today and... and I certainly think all of us should give some weight here, is because maybe you realize, you are, you are saved, but you realize today you've been living more in the flesh than you should be. And you've been setting your minds too much on the things of the flesh. You've, we used to use the term, you've backslidden from the Lord. The real proof of whether or not you are in Christ is whether you will turn and come back. And you have opportunity to do that today, to repent, to, as Paul said, stop letting sin reign in your life and to give yourself, offer yourself to God, committing yourself to Him. Will you do that this morning? Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word today and we, we pray that You would help us, Lord. We know that sin is deceitful and that we can easily deceive ourselves. Lord, we trust that 
through your word and through the power of your spirit that you will make these things clear and plain to us today. We pray for you to do so. And our commitment to you, Lord, is you would take our lives as we're about to sing and use them for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark. And if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.